Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk here on Biz News Radio. I'm Felicity Duncan and with me is Alec Hug. One of our most popular and I think successful stories this week, Alec, was the story of Metaco and its acquisition by Kame and then really just what you might call the unraveling of that acquisition. Um, and what we've had uh, several really good types of coverage on that. But one thing that I thought that was particularly brilliant was the timeline that our colleague Jackie Cameron put together, just very neutrally just showing the events of what happened, but painting overall, I think, a very damning picture of this corporate uh, corporate action. Timelines are fantastic, and they are too... Uh, they're under, underused in the media because it, it just seems to me that you can, if you follow a timeline and it's easy enough to pick up, you can then see how things progressed. I remember uh, for a very brief period when I was in the communications field at ABSA, that was in the mid-1990s, ABSA was going through a torrid time and there was a lot of bad reporting that was going on. Of course, in the mid-90s, before the internet, it was a lot less that uh, uh, fake news than you would see around today, because today anybody can get onto a computer and just issue any fake news they want to. Back then, at least, there was some kind of a, a filter through the publications themselves. But even so, there was an enormous amount of rubbish that was being written about it. And we struck, well, fell into this idea of putting together a timeline so you could explain, in this case, it was to do with the, uh, uh, the, the bailout loan that the Reserve Bank had given to Bancorp, which was owned by Sunlum. Sunlum then later sold Bancorp in to the company that was going to become ABSA. And ABSA was the one who then ended up acquiring this business. Uh, with a loan, with a bailout that had been issued many or some years before. And it was the one that came in for all the criticism instead of Sunlam, who were the ones who got the government to to give them this uh, generous generous um, support. But anyway, the whole idea then was at that time to put in the timeline. This is this is what happened. This is when Bancorp was acquired. This is when it got its loan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what has happened in this Metico story is very, very well put there. The timeline being compiled, having a look at the, the facts, the sequence of events. And it's very easy for us to be able to follow that in the way that makes sense. In fact, uh, it was a similar thing that uh, Jared Watson did in the Bosasa files that we published a month ago, where uh, his late uh, uncle, who he maintains and the family maintains, was innocent, Gavin Watson, uh, was gave well he died two days before he was going to hand over all this documentation they finally managed to do that but they did the same thing they gave the the sequence of events in that case they're saying that um, uh, it's really a case of industrial espionage by Angelo Grisi in this case the timeline is telling us and uh, on Grisi and the Watsons everybody seems to have their own view but when it, it comes to this thing with Comair and Metico. It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult to see anything other than Kame's abuse of power. Uh, the, the, the company decided it was going in one direction in diversification. The CEO of the company who was taking it in that direction made the acquisition of Metico. Metico was then changed to, to, to align itself with the Kame objective. That CEO then leaves suddenly because there's no successor named immediately 
and the new CEO who comes in doesn't like the story, has uh, cut back on, well, already Kami had cut back on the business that was being generated by Metico, and this CEO then summarily tries to reverse the deal. It, it's, just, it's just bad form apart from anything else, but as far as the Metico people are concerned, they have to fight this because their business is advising strategic leadership. Now, if you advise strategic leadership and you go through your own crisis situation that is, in their opinion, none of their doing, then you better be going to court and fighting it with every last cent that's in your mortgage bond. Otherwise, you won't have a business into the future anyway. And that's really the approach that they've taken. But on this one, what what I think is really disturbing is apart from Kome itself, which uh, I'm, I'm a bit dubious now about flying British Airways and Kulela if the company operates like this. But apart from Kome itself, there's the the impact of Investec, uh, sorry, of Bitfest. And Bitfest is part is is a company that's relied on making acquisitions uh, uh, of smaller businesses. Now, if you're making acquisitions of smaller businesses, and that's kind of your stock in trade, and you're shown to be the biggest shareholder in a company that abuses smaller businesses that it buys, you've got a problem. And we've heard nothing from Bitvest, nothing from Lindsay Ralphs, who's on the board of Bitvest, and no impact uh, or, or no acknowledgement even from Kame about what's going on here. So it's a it's a story that's developing and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more of it. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting tale and I do think, you know, there's a lot of um, lessons that can be drawn there for smaller companies and their dealings with larger companies. You know, when you look at the original rationale for the deal, so the, the Kame idea in acquiring Matico was that it would uh, create this new academy that didn't exist and would create this whole new sort of business line and all the rest of it. And um, and that Metico's revenues would primarily come from providing its services to the rest of Kame on a commercial basis, right? And, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of uh, what you might, if you were in the corporate finance, you would call kind of a, a, a distinction that it's not joining the core business, it's a bolt-on business, it's a new business line. And uh, and then you're so vulnerable as the smaller player to this sort of change in strategic direction that you outline. So there's a lot to be learned for people with small businesses in their interactions with larger businesses. You know, when you're considering these mergers or acquisitions and things like that, you got to think, you know, well, how do we fit in and how secure is that position that we're entering into? Because you see very frequently, and um, I myself have worked at a couple of places that were um, acquired by larger companies and uh, they mergers very seldom <laughs> deliver what they promise. You know, there's been quite a lot of studies about this and, and very seldom do they uh, provide benefits that exceed their costs. And um, and this is, you know, this is a, a good warning of that when you try and take two separate entities with different cultures, maybe different strategic aims, different perspectives on long term and short term, when you try and bolt those together, very often you end up in a situation where something is destroyed rather than something is created. Yeah, it, it, it's a really good point then. I think it's something like 80% of mergers fail. Uh, maybe the message here is that you need to get that divorce clause very, very tight before you do that transaction. When talking to Barbara Walsh, who's the managing director of Matica, 
uh, in the interview that I did with her, I asked her, didn't you guys read the contract properly or was there anything else that you could have done? And she said, no, she doesn't believe there could have been anything else because at the time they engaged with Eric Fenter, the CEO who left uh, and uh, who departed. And it was after he departed that all the nonsense started. And she said it wasn't, it was, it just wasn't possible uh, for her to have foreseen that. But that's something that as the inquiry, you need to take in, bear in mind. What happens if these really nice people that you're dealing with who do the acquisition depart or are themselves taken over or the management changes and new people come in and are not quite as nice? In, it's a bit like South Africa. We have a constitution which was written for President Mandela and then we got President Zuma. So it's it's kind of like don't centralize all the power in in uh, in in one president because you might get a nightmare uh, down the line. And similarly, in uh, when you're doing your transaction, make sure that you protect yourself against the unthinkable at that point in time. But something which in Metico's case actually did happen. It's a very good point, you know, you've got to, and it's, it's, uh, you know, oftentimes I think the acquirer um, is, you know, excited about the deal and maybe is not applying that level of scrutiny because they're just seeing the upside, which is often how entrepreneurs are, right? They see the upside, they're the positive, they're optimistic people. That's why they're willing to take the risk of creating a new business. Um, and so they sometimes aren't the kinds of people who want to look at something, look the gift horse in the mouth, as it were. But it was so important to pay real close attention to the details so that you don't end up in a position where you are... Uh, stuck in a contract with clauses that you never expected to be triggered, say, um, being triggered by, by adverse circumstances and changes like that. We, we learn all the time, don't we? We learn from uh, the mistakes of others. And they say that's the beginning of wisdom is to be able to uh, take aboard the experiences that other people have rather than having to do it all yourself. Yes, if, if only it were uh, an easy process to do. I've always found I have to learn by doing myself. Um, so uh, another opportunity for learning, Alika, that we wanted to pick up on and something that uh, we've just started this week is a, is a new sort of partnership with um, First Rand, republishing some of their brilliant perspectives uh, content. What is this perspectives? Is this a new thing? Well, we've got a, a long-standing partnership with First Rand on the Good Hope Project where it is uh, a, our directive there is to look out for good news, better news than, than is being published elsewhere. And it's, it's part of the human condition that we pay nine times more attention to negative than the positive. So as a consequence, the news media is similar. They would be publishing or we would be publishing negative news uh, more often than positive news. And the first strand is saying, let's try and get some balance there. So please look out for stories that, that aren't uh, the norm and uh, we'll sponsor the section. So that's where it, it all started. And it's been a very, very successful uh, sponsorship on their behalf. And our readers love it. The community at BizNews read uh, these stories that are very, very well read. And with that partnership, uh, it, it was in the conversation that I had with Sally Ann Moss, who's uh, one of the top executives at First Rand. And she explained that they've done something very different. They, on their home page uh, of the website, firstrand.co.za, they've got a section there called Perspectives. And what they've done is commissioned writers to write 
unusual things. So it's all part of the think differently approach that this particular financial services group tries to, uh, or is the way it's positioned. And the work that has been done there is exceptional. There's, there really, really is some great stuff. There's stuff that, uh, stories that would have been written maybe as the one and only story that a person is ever going to write in their life, but it's the thing that they know and that we're interested in. And we've started this week, we're republishing with their permission one a week, and we started this week with a story on IQ. Now, as somebody uh, who I've worked with for a long time, uh, I know you have a very high IQ. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's right up there. And it's, it's, it's interesting in this story is the person has gone back, uh, the writer, and had a look at the history of IQ and how the, the person with apparently the highest IQ in the 1920s in the United States uh, had, had, a, had an unfortunate life. Um, and it, it was just to show that, yes, IQs do perhaps bestow some kind of intellectual advantage on people, but they're not, it's not necessarily a gift. And I found that to be a, a really interesting piece. And we'll be having more stories uh, of that nature in the future. Yeah, I certainly think it's an interesting one. And IQ itself is just an interesting topic, you know, to, first of all, uh, there's a lot of questions around um, how effective IQ tests actually are at identifying the components of intelligence, um, especially some of the early IQ tests, which had questions about like jingles in popular commercials in America. Um, so it was really more of a cultural test than an intelligence test. You know, do you do you listen to the radio, I guess, at the time? Um, so, you know, that's an, it's an interesting area from that perspective. And then, you know, really, uh, there's this. And I think that the um, article, if I'm recalling correctly, alludes to this fact that there's there's not great evidence that a high IQ translates into success because success is, of course, made up of many things, um, including, you know, uh, big elements of luck, but also including um, uh, with the sort of what they call EQ, that emotional intelligence and how well you can get along with others and how uh, how well you can manage your own <laughs> emotional responses and uh, you know EQ and IQ do not always overlap <laughs> uh, so it's a it's an interesting topic and I think you know you're right it's something that you wouldn't necessarily see discussed very often and that's what makes these perspectives um, an interesting contribution is that they they're dealing with these topics that are not necessarily something that on the daily we're going to be covering but that really add a kind of a, a thoughtful um, and interesting aspect to the coverage that we do have up on the site. Indeed. I, I liked your, the point you were making there about success because, again, how do you define success? For some people, success is happiness. And how do you get happy? Well, for other people, there's a close link between service and happiness and so on. And you can go on and on and on. But all of it is to try and broaden our minds, try and make us uh, more curious, more perhaps informed, and I think that's what we do at BizNews. We, we don't always get it right, as we keep telling people. When we get it wrong, we promptly admit it, and we'll publish the correction and say, whoops, this one we slipped up on. Uh, but we do obviously endeavor our best to get it right. But we also endeavor to, uh, to, to move into areas that, uh, or to, to share information that might not necessarily be the stuff that you come across otherwise. And it's been lovely. It's it's a it's a wonderful project, and we know that our community really enjoy it. And I hope they really they they also take to perspectives because the work there is just top class. 
Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a summary of this interview, there's one up in biznews.com in the premium section. And don't forget, you can sign up for premium. It's just £5 a month, and that's going to give you access to our great uh, premium content and full digital access to the Wall Street Journal.